The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. With enemies like these, who needs friends? This is Thursday, June 14th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Our current president has been halfway around the world since last we met here, and there is no question about the importance of the agreements he signed and didn't sign. So we'll get to those post-haste. But first, a couple of things that may affect you more immediately and more directly. The price of everything bought on credit is about to go up. The Federal Reserve Bank has voted to raise the main interest rate, the one for credit cards, mortgages, and car loans, up from one and three quarters percent to two percent. And the Fed says it may raise the rates two more times before the year is up. The Fed made this move because it believes the economy is currently strong and that it will continue to grow in the year ahead. What the Fed may not have considered, that its move raises prices on people whose wages have not kept up with the profits enjoyed by corporations and CEOs. The Fed may not have also considered the effect of Trump's trade tariffs, which are also expected to raise prices. The Trump administration delivered a gut punch to millions of Americans this past week when it effectively announced the end of accessible insurance for Americans with pre-existing conditions. Under the Trump plan, millions of people could once again be denied health care coverage or denied the ability to afford it. The Trump Justice Department announced it would stop defending in court the Obamacare requirement that health insurance cover those pre-existing conditions. Twenty Republican-led states are suing the federal government to try to overturn that requirement, and the Trump administration agrees, calling the requirement unconstitutional. Trump and Republicans also believe the requirement that people have health insurance is also unconstitutional, and they believe the courts will rule in their favor. They also believe that once the rule is gone, the law protecting people with pre-existing conditions should go with it. Attorney General Jeff Sessions made that announcement by letter in which he said the decision was made, quote, with the approval of the president. Nothing changes immediately because of that announcement, but the announcement does put the Affordable Care Act on even shakier ground as Trump and his party continue to chisel away at that law. Now our Department of Justice, which exists to enforce laws, has decided not to enforce this law. Seventeen Democratic-led states are in court fighting to preserve the health care law, if the Justice Department can just throw in the towel whenever a law is challenged in court, it can effectively pick and choose which laws should remain on the books, says University of Michigan law professor Nicholas Bagley. That's not a rule of law I recognize, he says, adding, that's a rule by whim, and it scares me. Last month, Trump announced a plan to lower prescription drug prices. Two weeks later, Bayer jacked the price on two cancer drugs by more than a thousand bucks a month. Bayer has raised prices on those cancer drugs twice now in the past six months. In fact, there were dozens of prescription price jumps last month, many by double digits. Generic drugs that have been on the market for a long time now got the biggest price hikes. In making his announcement, Trump said we've already seen, quote, a major drop in the cost of prescription drugs. He went on, of course. Some of the big drug companies in two weeks, because of what we did, they're going to announce voluntary massive drops in prices. But a month later, prices continue to rise, sapping more money from taxpayers and patients. Did Donald Trump know the people in his campaign were heavily in touch with Russian operatives focused on defeating Hillary Clinton? The two people most likely able to answer that question are one of Trump's former campaign managers, Paul Manafort, and Trump's longtime personal attorney and fixer, Michael Cohen. So far, both have pleaded not guilty on the mounting federal felony charges they face. Both have refused to testify for investigators despite the growing pressure on them to save their own skins, to the extent they can negotiate that, or to continue to exercise their right to remain silent. Manafort is facing jail by week's end and Cohen now sees he's surrounded. On Monday, Cohen was forced to produce a list of his clients and exactly what he did for them. Fewer than 1% of them involved legal help. Earlier, Cohen was the target of a Mueller-led FBI raid on Cohen's home, office, safe deposit box, shredder, and the hotel where he stayed while he was remodeling his home. The pressure on Cohen, who has a wife and two daughters, has increased to the point that he has now parted ways with the lawyers who've been defending him against the prosecutors. Cohen had been using a law firm that charges $130,000 a week, and overdue bills began to accumulate. 
The firm Cohen was using has zero tolerance for non-payment. Michael Cohen has now switched from a team of lawyers to a single attorney. Is he about to flip? Or did Cohen just run out of money? Or is he flipping because he ran out of money? Or because of the enormous pressure on him? Or because of after years of loyal service to Trump, he's become persona non grata to Donald Trump? The parting of ways between Cohen and his lawyers is a huge development in this investigation, especially if Cohen has decided to flip under all this pressure. The witch hunt keeps finding witches. Special counsel Robert S. Mueller III has, in the past year of investigating Russian interference in U.S. politics, indicted 20 people in three businesses and filed 75 criminal charges. 25 of those charges, a third of them, are against Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, including conspiracy against the United States over a 10-year period. Rick Gates, Manafort's assistant chairman in the Trump campaign and a longtime business partner, faced nearly as many charges until he flipped, pleaded guilty, and agreed to testify for Mueller's investigators. Four other people have admitted their guilt, too, including a Russian who worked with Manafort. He flipped, did 30 days in jail, and is now back in Russia, having been deported. Trump campaign advisor George Papadopoulos also pleaded guilty to lying about his contacts with Russian agents, as did Trump's first national security advisor, Mike Flynn, as did Manafort's ex-brother-in-law. All of them now telling what they know about Paul Manafort and Donald Trump. And if there's pressure on Michael Cohen to flip, there's even more pressure on Paul Manafort. Tomorrow, Friday, Manafort will be in court to learn if he's going to jail for tampering with witnesses in the Mueller investigation. There will be other developments tomorrow. Special counsel Robert Mueller must, by Friday, obey a federal judge's order to reveal the names of the people and organizations that Mueller believes acted as unregistered foreign agents. These yet unnamed individuals and entities are mentioned in Mueller's indictment of Paul Manafort by identifying letters such as A, B, and C. Manafort's lawyers want names, and the judge agreed they should get them. This past Friday, Manafort and his Russian associate Konstantin Kalimnik were hit with a federal felony charge of witness tampering. Manafort's been under court-ordered home confinement and already spent some of his downtime on the phone at a chat service while his lawyers argued for his freedom until his trial next month in Virginia and the trial he faces in D.C. in September. Now, Manafort's not only facing more confinement, but behind bars instead of at home. Jail would make more tampering by Manafort far less likely. Russian intelligence officer Konstantin Kalimnik was hired by Paul Manafort, once calling Kalimnik my Russian brain. Kalimnik has other associates, including a Russian lobbyist who was in that Trump Tower meeting with Manafort, Donald Trump Jr., and Jared Kushner. Today, Kalimnik is safely back in Moscow, while Manafort is in some very hot water. The effort to get Manafort to plead guilty and start cooperating with investigators is now at what the Trump administration might call maximum pressure. Manafort and Kalimnik stayed in regular contact throughout the Trump campaign. Manafort asked Kalimnik how he could use his job in the campaign to get whole with Russian billionaire Oleg Deripaska. Manafort owes Deripaska $19 million in outstanding debts. At one point, Manafort told Kalimnik he could give Deripaska private briefings to update the oligarch about the progress of the Trump campaign. But today, the Russians are in Russia, and Manafort appears to be headed for jail. And if things don't go well for him, he'll be there for the rest of his life. Donald J. Trump, meanwhile, is due to be subpoenaed for a sit-down with Robert Mueller in the next week or so. Will he? He might. Word is, Trump still favors it while his lawyers remain skeptical. Or will he hunker down with his lawyers to take on the special counsel and fight the subpoena for a year or so? With Mueller this close to cornering the two men who know the most about what Trump did or did not know about Russians trying to help the campaign, many observers are expecting a battle. For Trump, the potential charge is obstruction of justice, and the evidence is deep and wide. More than twice as many voters want to vote this year for candidates who will resist Donald Trump over those who will support him. 48% say they will vote to resist versus just 23% who will vote to continue the Trump-publican agenda. When it comes to re-election candidates who've mostly voted with Trump, voters oppose them 53% to 31%. Among Trump supporters running for re-election, their support stands at 28% versus 
versus a 55% opposition. In purple voting districts, candidates who promise to be a check on Trump lead Trump supporters 52% to 19%. 52 to 19. 50% of Democratic citizens have registered to vote versus only 40% on the Republican side. What about voter enthusiasm? Only 47% of Republicans describe themselves as extremely interested in this year's elections against 63% of Democrats. Polls are never exact, but these numbers are far, far outside any margins of error. Of course, the election is still five months away. The Republican effort to suppress Democratic votes continues under the guise of stopping the widespread voter fraud they've failed to prove even exists. And they got a victory Monday from the conservative-led U.S. Supreme Court. The court voted 5-4 to four along party lines to let Ohio keep kicking people off the voter rolls because they've missed a few recent elections and haven't answered a letter about that. Keep in mind, many people didn't vote in 2016 because they didn't like either of the presidential choices. In Ohio, if they've skipped other federal elections recently, including midterms, they could vanish from the rolls. The Washington Post cites the case of Larry Harmon, a Navy veteran who lives near Akron, works as a software engineer. Larry voted in 04 and 08, but didn't vote in 12, 2012 because he didn't like the presidential choices. And since he doesn't usually vote in midterms, he didn't vote in 2010 or 2014 either. But he wanted to vote to decriminalize pot in the 2015 Ohio midterm and was turned away, told he was not registered. This military veteran who does exercise his right to vote when he has something to say was removed from the registration list. In addition to voter purges, as Ohio does, Republican majorities have cut back early voting across the country, eliminated same-day registration, and enacted tough so-called voter ID laws, all purportedly to eliminate the fraud that statistically does not exist. A study by Reuters two years ago found that Ohio had removed nearly 150,000 people from its rolls just in its three biggest counties, which include Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Columbus. The study found that twice as many voters had been removed in Democratic-leading neighborhoods than had been removed from Republican neighborhoods. The conservative majority on the bench insists it was only ruling on the constitutionality of this specific Ohio law, but dissenting justices expressed worry the decision would further suppress voting, and they worry that this week's decision was the beginning of a trend. Legally, it is a green light for other Republican states to purge their voter rolls as well. In spite of it all, Democratic momentum continues in the primaries, judging from the five that were held this week in Maine, Nevada, North Dakota, Virginia, and South Carolina. And a special election in Wisconsin Tuesday gave Democrats their 43rd district this year to flip from red to blue. And for Democrats, women candidates still lead the way. And there was some bad news this week on the Republican side, with a South Carolina anti-Trump Republican incumbent being defeated by a pro-Trump Republican. Trump condemned Congressman Mark Sanford and endorsed his opponent just hours before the polls closed, handing Sanford a close last-minute defeat. The message to Republicans, support Trump or lose your primary election race. That positioning will only help Republicans in the districts that are already diehard red, The polls and the primary results indicate that's a sure way to lose in every blue district and every purple district of every shade this November. The Republican Party also got a reminder this week that it is occupied, in part, by extremists and racists. In Virginia, the winner of this week's Republican primary is Corey Stewart, a white nationalist, a white supremacist tied to racist groups. Republican headquarters has no comment when asked if it will be giving Stewart any money or support. Stewart is so extreme, many Republican voters in that district are expected to stay home on Election Day, handing another win to another Democrat. Quoting Virginia's Republican lieutenant governor, This is not the party I once knew. Every time I think things can't get worse, they do. And, he adds, there is no end in sight. It is certainly noteworthy and possibly even historic that a sitting president of the United States would sit down to talk about nuclear weapons with the North Korean dictator. Much of the world hopes for an end to the threats, the tough talk, the missiles, the testing of nuclear weapons, and the horrible danger of it all. American veterans of the Korean conflict would like to see a peace treaty to officially end the war that began there in 1950. 
But the joint statement that came out of the meeting between Trump and Kim does not end the Korean War, and it gave Kim and North Korea the recognition and the stature they have scraped for for generations, a stature denied to this dictatorship by all other previous presidents. It does have North Korea returning the remains of the more than 5,000 American soldiers the North captured and imprisoned in the early 1950s. But as promising as Trump's visit appeared, it contains only vague promises, no peace treaty, and some tricky wording. To North Korea, denuclearizing the peninsula means removing the U.S. nuclear umbrella as well as North Korea's nukes. Kim wants the U.S. to remove its weapons defense system from the region. Without that and without the removal of 28,000 American soldiers from the north-south border, the deal may be off. From that agreement, North Korea believes it got what it wanted to get Trump to agree to lift some of the sanctions placed on that country and to end the regular military exercises conducted jointly by the U.S. and South Korea. Trump also agreed to protect North Korea and assist it with its struggling economy. Kim Jong-un did agree to denuclearize the Korean peninsula, but with no timetable, just the sort of vague promise it's made and broken repeatedly over the past 25 years. The denuclearization promised by Kim is no different than the vague promises made and broken by Kim's father and grandfather. Denuclearization could take years and cost billions of dollars while Trump is promising the North immediate relief. And the art of this deal contains no agreement for verifying that North Korea really is ditching its nuclear arsenal, something the Trump administration said beforehand it had to get from these talks. The agreement contains no specifics, which we're told will be ironed out later in future meetings between the two countries. And both Trump and North Korea have a history of pulling out of agreements. Iran made it a point to warn Kim Jong-un about that. And all of this deal-making, without a single mention of North Korea's mass violations of human rights, the imprisonment, the torture, the starvation, and the killing of hundreds of thousands of North Koreans. Trump says you can sleep better now knowing that, from his perspective, the nuclear threat from North Korea is gone. That remains to be seen. Mainly Trump and Kim got what they came for, each a much-needed political boost back home. Trump also returned with his mind on real estate. He commented on North Korea's great beaches, where he said great condos could be built. Trump claims denuclearization will take place very quickly with verification by U.S. and international inspectors. And to South Korea's dismay, end the war games with the South that consistently intimidate North Korea. This was news to South Korea, which got no notice of Trump's offer, but now says maybe that's okay if it keeps the talks going. This was a complete surprise to the U.S. military, which was neither consulted nor informed of Trump's decision. In fact... Since the Pentagon has received no direct order yet from the commander-in-chief, the U.S. military says the war games are still on, as far as it's concerned. So was Trump just thinking out loud? Or does he plan to hand North Korea, China, and Russia the exact thing they have wanted for decades for the U.S. to end its military exercises in that part of the world? Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says Trump will resume those war games if North Korea fails to negotiate in good faith. It was an historic meeting between Trump and Kim. The question is, will it lead to peace? What truly matters about the Trump-Kim summit is whatever follows it now. Congress is weighing in. Republicans in the Senate are urging Trump to run by them first any deals he makes with North Korea. As a check on the president's powers, lawmakers want to vote on those deals before they're implemented. The Senate may want to address some of what Trump did not primarily those human rights atrocities that Trump barely mentioned. The Trump-Kim summit is the subject of this week's commentary by Bob Seska. That and how Trump alienated our closest allies, plus an update on his war on immigrants after this. More often these days, we're asked to pay for something we used to get free, the news. This news comes to you without a paywall, without corporate ownership, and it's free. So please do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a little commission from Amazon for that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for homeschool, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, please support this free newscast through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. 
Before heading for Singapore, Trump was at his Trumpiest, angering our allies while fawning over dictatorships. Trump was in Canada for a meeting of a trade group that's been around for 40 years. At one point, it was called the Group of Eight, or G8, including the U.S., Canada, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and Russia. When Russia invaded Ukraine and overtook Crimea, Russia was kicked out of the group and it became the G7. After Trump's behavior at this year's summit, it may become the G6, with the United States also outside the group. Trump never wanted to go to the G7 summit in the first place. Trump hates traveling. He prefers to sleep in the White House or on one of his own properties. He complained about it, preferring to focus instead on his meeting with Kim Jong-un. Trump has complained repeatedly about German Chancellor Angela Merkel. He complained about having to see Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Before he even stepped on Air Force One, Trump mused about the idea of bringing Russia back into the group, apparently forgiving its military annexation in Ukraine, where Paul Manafort had worked to promote Russian influence. A grumpy Trump also threatened to punish our allies if they refused to renegotiate their trade deals with the U.S. He'd threatened not to sign on to this year's G7 statement. The first meeting at this year's summit began without Trump. He arrived too late to catch the meeting on gender diversity, and he skipped the meeting on climate change. He also left early and then slammed Canada's Trudeau for having a news conference, quote, after I left, indicating that Trudeau is both two-faced and backstabbing. After he left, Trump accused Trudeau of making false statements, of being dishonest. That's Trump talking. The same Trump who claimed Canada has the trade advantage when in fact the U.S. has an $8.5 billion surplus from the U.S.-Canadian trade deals. In his news conference, Trudeau had said he'd made it clear to Trump that if the metals tariffs of up to 25% are on, then Canada would retaliate. Trudeau added, we're polite, we're reasonable, but we will also not be pushed around. That is the comment from Trudeau's news conference that set off the Trump tirade. Trump had told Trudeau that tariffs were necessary to protect U.S. national security, even when the trade partner is Canada, which Trudeau had earlier called insulting. Speaking of insults, Trump's economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, accused Trudeau of betraying the president, and Trump advisor Peter Navarro said there was a special place in hell for Trudeau for what he had said. Navarro later apologized after the damage had been done. Kudlow suffered a heart attack from which he is expected to fully recover. But Trump exploded with anger, directing his name-calling at Canada's prime minister while praising Kim Jong-un, signing a deal to put a Chinese company back in business and proposing that Russia be invited back into the G. Fill in the current number here. Trump won't likely get his wish for a G8 that includes Vladimir Putin, but he may get his apparent wish for a G6 without the U.S., an idea that until this week was unthinkable. Quoting French President Emmanuel Macron, the American president may not mind being isolated, but neither do we mind signing a six-country agreement if need be. The countries of the world are now beginning to unite with each other to defend themselves against the U.S. and to form a powerful retaliation against the U.S. If they retaliate, said Trump, they're making a mistake. Trump believes he's in the right and those six other world leaders, including our dearest allies and neighbors, are wrong. As the New Yorker put it, under Trump, America first really is turning out to be America alone. Trump left the summit with the U.S. as the only G7 nation not supporting the latest public statement. A good time was not had by all, and it was off to Singapore for a meeting Trump cared about. And the U.S. stood on the brink of a trade war with its oldest friends while Americans waited for the inevitable higher prices. While accusing our closest Western allies of robbing the American piggy bank and punishing our allies for that perceived wrong, Trump had more praise for dictators and a lifting of sanctions against the Chinese phone maker ZTE, despite its multiple violations of U.S. law and the security threat that it poses to this country. ZTE phones are banned from all U.S. government agencies for their security risk. And Trump lifted the sanctions on ZTE after we'd learned that Chinese government hackers had stolen from the computers of a U.S. Navy contractor massive amounts of highly sensitive data on American submarine warfare just a few months ago. 
A war with China would be mostly fought under the sea, and China's been focused on catching up with U.S. submarine technology and on capitalizing on weaknesses in U.S. naval defense. The Pentagon and the FBI are investigating the hacking, but neither will comment yet. Trump's ZTE decision, meanwhile, even made Republican lawmakers cringe. So much so, the Senate this week voted to block Trump's decision to lift the sanctions on ZTE. Republicans joined Democrats to force the president to keep his campaign promise to be tough on China. And there's that sound again. The one that injured American diplomats in Cuba and chased them out of that country. It's happening again, this time in China. On May 23rd, at one of our U.S. consulates there, a staffer had been diagnosed with a mild brain injury after reporting abnormal sounds and pressure. Now the staff at all U.S. consulates in China are on alert for that sound, being told to contact a doctor if they get those weird symptoms. After the Cuban incidents, the Trump administration expelled Cuban diplomats from the U.S. Will the same thing happen with China? Now, here with a closer look at this week's Trump-Kim summit and his own takeaways is Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. The reason great dealmakers don't openly celebrate a deal, especially one that isn't complete, is because it shows weakness to the other side. Donald Trump is therefore the weakest dealmaker in recent memory, and his alleged deal with Kim Jong-un isn't a deal at all, made worse by Trump's frenetic effort to characterize both the deal and Kim himself as the greatest things ever. By the way, the first line of this commentary about celebrating a deal, not my words. It was originally tweeted by Donald Trump back in November of 2013. As they say on social media, there's always a tweet. Let's be perfectly clear about this deal. There is none. Sure, Trump and Kim signed their names to a piece of paper containing four bullet points, but there's absolutely nothing on those two brief pages that commits either side to doing anything. There's no wording about verification, timetables, numbers, or anything resembling an actual set of deal points. For example, the now infamous Iran deal is 18 pages, and that's just the introductory document. There are six more separate annexes, ranging in length from six pages to 29 pages. It required four years of intense negotiations with the Iranian government to land on the final document, all of it vetted and compiled by six allied nations, including China, France, Germany, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Trump's pathetic whatever-this-is with Kim Jong-un reads as if Mike Pompeo and John Bolton drunkenly scribbled it on a post-it during the red-eye flight from Canada to Singapore. Worse yet, there's no true sense of what either group said or didn't say during their pair of meetings. Now, 48 hours after the fact, each side is making claims about the extent of the not-a-deal, even though none of what they're saying has been committed to paper. Trump, immediately following the meeting, began the process of festooning the hastily manufactured undeal by telling reporters that he agreed to end our military exercises with South Korea after the deal was already signed. Therefore, this out-of-nowhere addition isn't even a real commitment. Likewise, the North Korean press, such that it is, reported that Trump agreed to lift sanctions too, despite also not being part of the fake deal. On that point, it's possible Trump promised Kim that he'd kill the sanctions, but no one from the administration has confirmed or denied anything about that one. Ultimately, if your thing has been to crap all over the Iran deal as being shoddy and ill-conceived, you don't get to ballyhoo the North Korea meeting. From the very beginning of his campaign, Trump pummeled the Iran deal to the delight of his easily led fanboys and finally reneged on the terms of the deal last month, which seems like forever ago. And then he has the nerve to sign an alleged accord with North Korea, even though by any and all measures, it's far worse and shoddier than the weakest aspects of the Iran deal. So where does this leave us? Clearly, both the Trump administration and the Kim regime will do whatever the hell they want. Absolutely nothing is required of them, so either side could walk away at any time, rendering the circus sideshow in Singapore entirely moot. Indeed, North Korea has walked away from its pledges in 1985, 1992, 1994, 2002, 2003, 2005, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2016. All that said, it's not difficult to understand Trump's motives for artificially inflating the importance of the North Korea document. This is what he does. Everything he touches and everything he likes is invariably the most tremendous thing ever. 
This is how he scams the rubes. If he believes it, then they'll believe it. But why is Trump making such a show of praising Kim? Here's just one example of what Trump told Sean Hannity the other night. Quote, he was a strong guy. He has a very good personality. He's funny. And he's a very strategic kind of guy. Very impressive. Unquote. Trump has never been this publicly effusive about his own male children. So why Kim? Well, it's the same as always. Kim and his regime know that Trump is an extraordinarily needy man who desperately wants people to like him. So, as part of their Singapore strategy, they were courteous and kind to Trump, triggering the president to form the D.C. chapter of the Kim Jong-un fan club. And yeah, celebrating as often as possible. It's no mystery why Trump is doing what he's doing, but what's truly soul-crushing is the lack of outrage and reaction to his praise, given Kim's atrocities against his own people, crimes against humanity, against political prisoners, specifically. Here's some of the handiwork of the man who Trump referred to as, quote, strong, good, funny, strategic, and impressive. This via the International Bar Association's War Crimes Tribunal. Number one, prisoners tortured and killed on account of their religious affiliation with officials instructed to wipe out the seed of Christian reactionaries. Two, a prisoner's newborn baby fed to guard dogs and killed. Three, an abortion induced by three men standing on a wooden plank placed on a pregnant prisoner's stomach. Four, a female prisoner losing consciousness after enduring a beating designed to trigger premature labor, with prison officials killing her baby before she could regain consciousness. Five, a prisoner raped by a security officer, after which the officer pushed a wooden stick inside her vagina and beat her lower body, resulting in her death within a week. And the list goes on and on and on, reading like something out of a horrible Rob Zombie movie. For the record, Trump told Chris Matthews that women who have abortions should be imprisoned. But Kim, who's tortured pregnant women and fed their babies to dogs, is, quote, strong, good, funny, strategic, and impressive. Worse, his allegedly anti-abortion disciples agree. Weak, Yes. Unforgivable and irredeemable. Also, yes. Trump has bungled and botched his way into elevating a crackpot dictator to the level of world power, endowing with praise and recognition a dictator who does all of the above to his people for merely criticizing the Kim government. Not only are we less safe following this meeting, but we should keep an extra close eye on Trump's actions. If Kim is such a wonderful man, despite all of his terrible behavior... It wouldn't be much of a stretch for Trump to sink to that level, too, especially after his red hats have bought into Trump's unapologetic endorsement of the North Korean despot. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com, The Daily Banter, and every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com. Bob will have a fresh show this afternoon. Join me with him there every Tuesday. You'll find Corso's Flower and Garden Center in two convenient locations, off I-81 in Sandusky, Ohio, on the shoreline of Lake Erie, the other in the town of Castalia, a little ways inland. Last week, 200 federal officers swarmed those garden centers and arrested 114 people who work there. It was an immigration raid, complete with 200 armed federal agents surrounding the premises, blocking off streets, and flying helicopters overhead. A parade of buses waited outside the perimeter to carry to detention those who appeared to be here illegally. Many of them now face tax evasion and other charges. The workers' children, meanwhile, were left stranded at daycare centers or babysitters. The owner of the business remains under scrutiny but was not arrested in this massive raid. Two months ago, Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement arrested 97 workers at a meat plant in Tennessee and raided nearly 107-Eleven stores arresting another two dozen people. Pablo Calderon had delivered a lot of pizzas to the men and women at the Fort Hamilton U.S. Army base in Brooklyn, New York. On a recent delivery, Pablo was detained and then arrested and then taken to jail, the Hudson County Correctional Facility in New Jersey. Pablo delivered pizzas to feed his wife and two children, all of whom are U.S. citizens. His two-year-old daughter has a congenital heart defect. Pablo, who was ordered deported for a lack of papers eight years ago, was suddenly behind bars after a routine pizza delivery. Give us your tired, your poor. And yet, the Trump war on immigrants continues to escalate. Children are still being ripped from the arms of their mothers at the border and stuffed into cages. 
And now the Trump administration is reportedly considering building tent cities to house those now unaccompanied children. Homeland Security reports that its shelters are 95% full, now housing more than 10,000 children. The tent cities at U.S. Army bases in Texas and elsewhere would house as many as 5,000 more migrant children. Trump's Justice Department, led by Jeff Sessions, has this past week declared the DACA program unlawful. President Obama issued an executive order creating that program to protect from deportation immigrants who were brought here as children. A Trump executive order ripped holes in that program, making DACA-protected people suddenly vulnerable. Now the Justice Department is asking a court to declare the entire program unlawful and to cancel all of the remaining DACA permits. Throw them all out. Attorney General Sessions has vowed that 100% of immigrants who enter the country unlawfully will be prosecuted even if they come here seeking asylum. On Capitol Hill, the House next week will vote on two competing bills on DACA, a conservative version that does kill the program and a bipartisan version that keeps it. On Monday, Attorney General Jeff Sessions put a virtual stop to all legal immigration from Central America when he rejected a fear of gang violence or domestic abuse as grounds for asylum. Why would someone come to the U.S. to escape a violent spouse or lover? Because not all countries have laws or enforce laws to protect the victims of domestic violence. The U.S. does. But the U.S. is no longer offering safety and asylum to these victims because Jeff Sessions says so with the understood approval of Donald Trump. And the fear of gang violence is one of the greatest reasons for fleeing your Central American home to come to the United States. And so all of those people are now also being denied asylum, even in cases where members of their family have already been killed and they know that they or one of their children are next. Asylum is mostly a temporary thing. Only a small percentage are ever granted permanent entry. And the U.S. has a long history of granting asylum, safe harbor for people in various kinds of danger. Give us your tired, your poor, but not those domestically abused or those fleeing gang violence. From the kids to the garden supply, meat plant, and convenience store workers, and to the pizza delivery guy and so many others, we are witnessing the Trump administration's zero-tolerance immigration policy at work. But there is still the rule of law and a strong resistance to what Trump and his attorney general are doing. A federal judge has given a thumbs up to a lawsuit against the administration's separation of families, a policy aimed at discouraging immigration. The ACLU lawsuit, now green-lighted by a judge in California, involves a woman separated from her seven-year-old daughter. Mother and daughter were kept in facilities that are literally separated by 1,000 miles. The lawsuit calls the policy unconstitutional. The Trump administration had tried to get the judge to kill the lawsuit, arguing that separating families is not a constitutional issue. The judge hasn't ruled on that, but says such conduct by the government is brutal, offensive, unfair, and indecent. Across the continent, in Philadelphia, a federal judge ruled that the Justice Department cannot withhold federal funding from the city of brotherly love just because it's a sanctuary city for immigrants. Philly stood to lose more than $1.5 million in, wait for it, law enforcement money, thanks to a decision from the Trump Sessions Department of Justice. The judge ruled the city gets the money, period. Actually, the judge said a lot more than that, comparing the administration's policy to Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. Philadelphia had, in this comparison, escaped tyranny and reached Thrinacia safely. The mayor called it a total and complete victory and called the current president a bully. Oh, and about that pizza delivery guy, Pablo? Over the weekend, a federal judge stopped his deportation. But this 35-year-old native of Ecuador remains behind bars until his hearing date on July 20th. Besides pausing the deportation process on Mr. Calderon, the judge also ordered the Trump administration to explain why the immigrant shouldn't be allowed a temporary injunction against his detention. And Pablo also has the support of the Legal Aid Society, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, and the state's governor, Andrew Cuomo. Quoting de Blasio, delivering pizza is not a risk to public safety. The Trump zero-tolerance policy lives. So does the resistance. One high-profile suicide can lead to others. When two or more bold-faced names take their lives, it starts a conversation about suicide, and we learn things. 
fashion designer Kate Spade, in the depths of her depression, expressed to her sister admiration for the way Robin Williams had taken his life nearly four years earlier. Robin Williams had hanged himself. Last week, so did Kate Spade. And then, beloved chef philosopher Anthony Bourdain did the same. People whose names are far less known were unfazed. They each ended their lives at an average pace of one every 12 minutes. In the most recent two years on record, suicide rates have risen by nearly a third across all demographics in nearly every state except Nevada, which already had a rate above the national average. In North Dakota, the suicide rate is up by more than 57%. The death toll is even higher in Montana. And fewer than half the people who decide to snuff it had any known mental health condition. It's not just a mental health issue. It's a public health issue. The recession had a lot to do with the increase, but the numbers have not gone back down in this recovery. The opioid epidemic is surely a factor since it's difficult to determine in the case of addicts whether their death was accidental or intentional. Suicide used to be the domain of middle-aged men, but women have nearly caught up. Problems associated with suicide include relationships, financial strain, substance abuse, and a recent or pending crisis. Suicide kills more people than war, more people than die in car wrecks. It kills twice as many firefighters as fires do twice as many cops as that job does. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among teenagers. Among children over the age of 10, there are twice as many black victims as white. The leading method of suicide involves a gun. The phone number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-TALK. Background checks for gun buyers work both ways. We've known this for some time by nationwide statistics, but a new study shows 14% fewer gun murders in urban counties where a background check for a handgun license is required. That's never been studied before, and urban counties are where two-thirds of gun killings occur. Places that only require dealer background checks saw gun deaths rise by 16%. The study found that cooling off laws that delay the actual purchase also help. The study found that murders are up in the stand-your-ground neighborhoods most prevalent in Florida. States with right-to-carry laws had a 7% increase in gun deaths after those right-to-carry laws were enacted. And the study found that states that encourage more guns in public with open-carry laws have a higher gun murder rate in their urban counties. A state investigation in Florida has revealed that the state had, for over a year, not run background checks on many people applying for concealed weapons permits. The investigation found that state officials stopped doing those background checks when they found themselves unable to log into the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check System, known by its acronym NICS, N-I-C-S. Florida failed to use part of the NICS system. The result appears to be drug addicts and the mentally ill with easy access to concealed carry permits for more than a year. Florida is the scene of 50 deaths at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, 17 deaths at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Florida's Agriculture Secretary Adam Putnam is in charge of those permits. He was elected eight years ago on the promise of speeding up the issuing of concealed carry permits. Mission accomplished. He's now running for governor on that accomplishment. There are now nearly 2 million people in Florida alone who are licensed to pack hidden heat. The woman from the mailroom whose job it was to run these non-criminal background checks tells the Tampa Bay Times she knows that what she did was wrong, but adds, I didn't understand why I was put in charge of it. On May 17th, a warrant was issued for the arrest of 29-year-old Martiz Edwards, who was wanted for first-degree murder. It took nearly three weeks for word to get to the Secret Service. That's unfortunate because between those dates, the suspected killer had access to the White House. He was arrested last week as he showed up for work as the employee of a contractor. He showed up for work and was arrested for murder. Edwards allegedly shot and killed his ex's new boyfriend. An investigation is underway to determine why it took so long for word of those criminal charges to get to the agency assigned to protect the president. Trump's staff is also trying to protect him from himself. 
The Presidential Records Act, in place since Watergate, requires all presidential documents, right down to post-it notes, be saved for the archives, for historians, and for the future students of history. Trump, for as long as anyone can remember, even back to his early days in real estate, tends to tear up a document after he's through reading it. Politico published a fascinating report this week about the two men who earned their livings for a while working across from the White House, scotch-taping Trump's papers back together. The future students of history will see documents or pictures of documents that have been taped together as best these men could manage. Sometimes the job was easy. Sometimes Trump would simply tear a page in half and toss it in the trash or on the floor. Having been warned about the legal consequences of letting that document get away, staffers have scooped up those pieces and shipped them straight to the old executive office building. But sometimes Trump would tear a document over and over and over again until it was little bits and pieces. The guys with the rolls of tape had to assemble these documents like jigsaw puzzles and then apply the tape. Trump, the human shredder, was a nightmare for staffers in the first five months and until they finally got him to stop the tearing, mostly. The two men with the tape have been let go. They've been replaced by just one worker who doesn't have to use nearly as many rolls of tape. The Internet, Science, and Health, Marijuana, Monkeys, and More in the third and final segment, up next. Hair today, gone tomorrow, right? I did not know that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35, but they do. The hairline withdraws, that bald spot peeks through. What's that going to look like a year from now or two years? Keep the hair you have as long as you can. And don't buy the stuff at convenience stores and gas stations. Buy the stuff from medicine and science. Now, thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. Forhims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. Forhims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness. There's no waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and it's all much faster. Just answer a few quick questions, the doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is amazing. It certainly got my attention. It's a simple, no-nonsense site with products I'm eager to try. Right now, my listeners and I can get a one-month trial of hymns for just five bucks and save hundreds of dollars on doctor and pharmacy visits. See the website for details. This is a very limited offer, so hit pause right now and go to 4 slash BBNC. I'll spell it. F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash BBNC. 4 com slash BBNC. Today's broadcast marks the beginning of my sixth year hosting an independent program of news and analysis. The program turned five on Monday. I continue for the love of bringing journalism to people and for the people like you who tell me it's appreciated. Thank you for that, then, now, and in the future. AT&T and Time Warner are about to become one company. A company that produces both news and entertainment programs will now also deliver that content to TVs, computers, laptops, notebooks, and phones, giving that one company great control over much of the media we consume. A federal judge has approved the merger over the objections of the Trump Justice Department. The DOJ's antitrust division argued the merger would reduce competition and lead to higher TV and Internet prices which it might. But this is the same administration that ripped away net neutrality led by a president who does not like the negative coverage he gets from CNN, which is owned by Time Warner and soon also AT&T. The judge's okay of the AT&T-Time Warner deal also clears the way for other such mega-mergers. 21st Century Fox Studios, Rupert Murdoch's entertainment division is up for sale, and Comcast and Disney are now in a bidding war to buy it. Comcast is now the likely winner, now offering $65 billion over Disney's offer of $52.4 billion. Comcast made its newest bid yesterday right after the AT&T-Time Warner merger was approved. Both movie and TV studios, Disney and Comcast NBC Universal, are desperate for a way to stream their content to keep up with AT&T and Time Warner. Disney may be the more desperate of the two since it would not only get the streaming service it needs, it would get the complete rights to the Star Wars franchise. 
Net neutrality officially vanished at the hands of the Trump administration this week. The Obama-era rule that kept the Internet a level playing field, an equally shared utility, that expired on Monday. Although we're not likely to see any immediate changes, we are likely to see changes. Internet providers now have the option of blocking your access to some sites, steering you to others, and slowing down service for some while increasing speeds for others, presumably those with the deepest pockets. Supporters of net neutrality say they expect it to return not long after this fall's midterm election. You may have set your Facebook page to make new posts only visible by a select group of people. But for four days in May, Facebook switched your setting to public. And 14 million people who thought they were posting privately suddenly were not. Those who noticed were able to change back their settings on their own, but most did not know it happened. Facebook has notified users, apologized, and fixed the bug that caused the unwanted switch from private to public. The bug was created accidentally as Facebook engineers were testing a new feature. Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un without the usual complement of experts that have always traveled with a president for such a summit. Trump made it clear that he'd touch and feel Kim Jong-un and would know in a minute whether to trust him. After the meeting, Trump said he had that trust. What Trump didn't have handy, or even back in Washington, was a nuclear physicist. An expert in nuclear science could have helped Trump and the few advisors he did have handy negotiate an agreed-upon definition of denuclearization. But Trump doesn't like that sort of thing. He's more touchy-feely. North Korea had its nuclear guy at the table. Trump didn't. The White House usually has a senior counselor who's trained in nuclear physics. It's been that way since the World War II days of 1941. This president does not have one which underscores that Trump doesn't like science. Trump's State Department also has no chief scientist. Global warming may not be an issue to Trump, but it is to the other nations of the world who have scientists. No scientists either in our Department of Growing Food, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Trump did nominate a conservative talk radio guy for that job, but he withdrew after it was pointed out he's not a scientist. Trump's Food and Drug Administration has disbanded its Food Safety Advisory Committee because, hey, who needs safety? The new head of NASA is not a scientist. Climate science committees have been eliminated in both the Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and at the Interior Department, which oversees our natural resources. Trump Republicans don't like science. Science tells us that climate change is coming to get us with rising seas from the melting of the polar caps. A new study, though, says the CO2 may get us first. Two British universities have found out that even if we curb global warming and succeed in our worldwide quest to keep the planet's temperature rise to under 1.5 degrees Celsius, that the rising levels in carbon dioxide in our air will trigger storms even more deadly than the ones we've been seeing. And maybe a race between global warming and the CO2 that causes it. A team of 80 scientists reported just yesterday that Antarctic ice is melting three times as quickly as it was 10 years ago. The pace of the melting really picked up in 2002 and got even faster in 2012. The sheets of ice are melting faster and faster now, now producing well over 200 billion tons of ice chunks into the ocean, causing sea levels to rise a half millimeter a year. That means seaside cities and low-lying communities have less time than they thought to prepare for the rising tide. Unless we act quickly, we've been warned. Science also brought us fascinating news this week about another planet, Mars. NASA's Curiosity rover found two signs of what was life on Mars. Methane in the air, which can only be produced by rotting organic matter, and organic molecules in the mudstone on Mars that is three billion years old. Now, to try to find out if these living organisms once survived on Mars or whether they were brought there by an asteroid or carried there by some other life form. A local TV news teaser might put it this way, your kitchen towel is trying to kill you. A new study found germs lurking on kitchen towels laden with illness-causing bacteria from cross-contamination. And many people use just one towel to wipe their hands, dry the dishes, wipe the counter, and as potholders. Hence the cross-contamination of cooked and uncooked food and unwashed food, hands, and utensils. 
A damp towel is fertile soil for the bacteria which grow and spread. E. coli is one of the bacteria found on cloth kitchen towels. Paper towels are not necessarily the answer, however, if you're one of those people who use that same paper towel for more than one job. Researchers found the bacteria count was higher than average in large families and less than average in vegetarian homes. And there was a new salmonella scare this week. Scores of people fell ill across the Midwest, apparently from pre-cut melon pieces from Cato Foods. Half those people were in hospitals in Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. Five dozen people sickened in all. Kroger immediately recalled the pre-cut melons from that supplier in that state and in Georgia, Kentucky, and North Carolina. And there's a chance your prescription pills are making you depressed, according to a new study. The University of Illinois' College of Pharmacy found that drugs taken by more than a third of us include possible side effects, including depression. Now, those medications include birth control pills, blood pressure beta blockers, and pain medications. 37% of us use one or more of those, and the study found that combining prescriptions with these possible side effects can amplify this chemically-induced depression. The study found that the use of the aforementioned drugs increased 7% over the past 10 years. Prescriptions for drugs with suicide as a possible symptom increased to 24%. The study says even some over-the-counter medications also have mood risks. By the end of this year, nearly two-thirds of our 50 states will have legalized medical and or recreational marijuana with votes in four more states this year. On the federal level, marijuana is still illegal, and that's enforceable, even on people who use it legally at the state level. Attorney General Jeff Sessions is on record as condemning marijuana and the people who use it and vowing to enforce those federal laws even in states where it's legal within the borders. At the federal level, weed is on a scale with heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. It's legal here and not there. It's a mess. It's confusing. And notably, the federal government is missing out on piles of sweet tax money. So when will Congress get on board? Not long, perhaps. On the Republican side, Rand Paul is trying to get hemp legalized. Mitch McConnell says it will be in the next version of the Farm Bill. And former House Speaker John Boehner is now a lobbyist for a marijuana company. In the past year, the legalization of marijuana has gotten public support from Democratic lawmakers Chuck Schumer, Bernie Sanders, and Kirsten Gillibrand. Schumer sponsored a legalize it bill himself, as did New Jersey's Cory Booker along with California's Barbara Lee. But now there's a bipartisan effort to legalize pot in every state that's waited for exactly that. Colorado Republican Cory Gardner and Massachusetts Democrat Elizabeth Warren are co-sponsoring a bill that would give each state the right to decriminalize or legalize pot within their borders. And President Trump says he'll probably sign it. When a reporter asked Senator Warren who would vote for marijuana in an election year, she replied, the two of us. And apparently so would Trump. Which California would you choose? Also on the ballot this fall in California, a proposal to split into three states, California, Northern California, and Southern California. California would include the part of the coastline north and south of L.A. and a bit inland. The rest of the state would be divided into two states of nearly equal geographical size. The last time California voted to split was in 1859. And since Congress never acknowledged that decision, the split never happened. Passings and Passages George H.W. Bush this week became the first president to live more than 94 years. The first Bush was also the first president to live 94 years and beyond. Ford and Reagan were the previous record holders, each passing at 93. Jimmy Carter is on track to match Bush's record come October. Living presidents Clinton, W., and Trump are all 71. Obama is 56. The elder Bush was focused on two things shortly after the passing of his wife, Barbara, who lived to see her 92nd birthday. Bush Sr. wanted to get up to Kenny Bunkport in Maine, and he wanted to celebrate 94. Bush, who's been hospitalized twice since Barb's passing, reportedly spent his birthday low-key. The very first so-called Bond girl has died at the age of 90. She had roles on the TV series The Saint and The Avengers. 
But in the earliest 007 movies, Dr. No and From Russia With Love, British actress Eunice Gason played the spy's love interest, Sylvia Trench, against Sean Connery's James Bond. It was to actress Eunice Gason that Connery first spoke the words, Bond, James Bond. It was women and children first at the movies this week, literally. An audience of mostly women spent $42 million to see Sandra Bullock's Ocean's 8. Some of that mostly female audience also saw Book Club in seventh place this week. An audience of mostly teens left the Star Wars movie Solo in a weak second place, and Deadpool 2 fell two spots to third. The Avengers movie is in fifth. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Bourbon, now with the real taste of beaver. A distiller in New Hampshire wants you to know that its latest bourbon, Eau de Musk, is partly flavored by oils from the castor sacks of New Hampshire beavers. Those sacks produce a scent that now comes in a bottle. An executive of the Tamworth Distilling and Mercantile Company described that scent as leathery, rich, and slightly fruity in a, quote, non-traditional sense. The guy who traps the beavers to extract those oils says you and I have probably already tasted it. Quoting him, when you eat something good and you see natural flavors, a lot of the times you can thank a trapper. The next time we see a trapper, we'll certainly have questions. A beaver bourbon is not for those with a weak wallet. A six-ounce bottle runs 65 bucks. Tayab Suwami of Hackensack, New Jersey, will stick to orange juice, but he can have whatever he wants. Tayab and his wife picked up a bottle of OJ at ShopRite, but then she found it on sale for half that price. With their home refinanced and their daughter headed for college, every penny counts, or so they thought. Now, to recover that $2.50, Tayeb took the first bottle of juice back to ShopRite. While he was there, he saw a sign for a Powerball jackpot that was, at that moment, $306 million. He sometimes plays that game when the jackpot gets big. So Tayeb used some of that $2.50 to buy a couple of tickets because he just had a feeling. The next morning was like any other for Tayeb, running errands, some yard work, get the car washed while his wife whipped up some meals for the week ahead. On the way to the car wash, Tayeb stopped by 7-Eleven to see if maybe he scanned the first ticket and nothing. He scanned the second ticket and the machine said, must be seen by retailer. He took it to the cashier and told her he thought her machine might be broken. Oh my God, she screamed. For himself, Tayeb said it was like a Tom and Jerry cartoon where the heart goes boom, boom, boom. Tayab won $315 million for returning orange juice. Quoting Tayab, I love orange juice now. Buy a bicycle, get a free lizard. A California couple ordered a bike online for their granddaughter, and when they opened the box that was brought to their door, out popped a dragon with a beard. Quoting Grandpa Al, at first I freaked out because he was so big. Bearded dragon lizards are native to Australia, but are legal to keep as pets in California. Animal services think it may be an escaped pet, and they're trying to track down the owner. That was no monkey climbing a skyscraper in the Minnesota capital of St. Paul this week. Mostly thanks to a live camera, thousands of people watched online and in person, enraptured, as a raccoon headed for the top of the UBS Plaza Tower. For a while, there was great concern the raccoon was in trouble, and Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn, who was captivated as everyone else, put up a thousand bucks to rescue the raccoon. Somebody help him, please. But quoting the city safety director, eh, the best thing is to leave him alone. Turns out she was right. The raccoon amazingly, safely, made it to the top of a St. Paul skyscraper, all 25 stories, over 305 feet in the air. The raccoon was rescued at the top once he was already safe. He has since been released into the wild, far from any tall buildings. Do not leave your monkey in the car on a hot day, or maybe ever. It was not just another day at Home Depot when a customer's pet spider monkey got out of its owner's car and followed that owner into the Home Depot where it was overwhelmed by the strange surroundings. Home Depot employee Marilyn Howard says... I reached down, and she reached up and grabbed my hand, so gentle, so cute. 
And when Howard picked up the monkey's leash, she suddenly had a monkey on her back. And it bit her twice. The monkey beat feet for the door but got spooked by the automatic door opener. Marilyn was able to get hold of the leash again, only to be bitten again, this time on her arm and her hand, and she got a scratch to her face. The sheriff's office has turned this whole affair over to Fish and Wildlife. Florida Fish and Wildlife. Okeechobee Branch. And there's more monkey news this week from the home office. The Pasco County Sheriff's Office found a suspected car thief and a whole lot more. The 23-year-old suspect found an unlocked car in St. Petersburg and found the keys under the floor mat. Police found the car and the alleged perp in a ditch later. The monkey might have had something to do with that. Police say a monkey was clinging to the driver's body. The suspect says he bought the monkey four years ago, wherever finer monkeys are sold. Named him Monk. But young Cody Blake Hessian doesn't have a monkey license, which is required in Florida. So young Cody now faces charges of grand theft auto and possession of an unlicensed exotic animal. The monkey is fine. He now lives at the Suncoast Primate Sanctuary, not far from this studio. Perhaps Monk and I will meet one day in person. Florida earned its place on this broadcast as the home office because of stories like that one and this one. In Lehigh Acres near Fort Myer, the Fritchie family awoke to the sound of someone banging on their roof. The Fritchies sleep a little later, but the roofers always come early. The thing of it is, the Fritchies had not ordered a new roof. They did not need a new roof at the time. The owner of the roofing company says the workers put the wrong address into their GPS. He has apologized, and his workers have repaired the roofing they damaged. But the Fritchies are not satisfied with this patch job. The company's owner says he is now eager to meet with the couple as soon as possible to make this right before it ends up in court. The Fritchies are still a bit shocked to awaken to the sound of someone trying to tear the roof off the sucker. And finally... Women like skinny dipping, too, especially if other women go along. In Ireland this year, they set a new Guinness World Record for the biggest all-female skinny dip ever. 2,500 women showed up and showed all for the annual strip and dip in Ireland's County Wicklow to raise $350,000 for a cancer charity by staying in the water for five minutes. It wasn't easy. This dusts the previous world record set in Australia by 786 nude men and women. But in Ireland last Saturday, the waters off County Wicklow were cold. You could just tell. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.